Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the, and there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold, an ND Insider podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The Irish have the week off to prepare for the ACC championship game rematch against Clemson on December 19th, but the podcast isn't taking any breaks this week. Um, Before we deep dive into that rematch, we wanted to take a step back and reflect on the season a bit and look forward beyond 2020. Uh, and to do that, we're going to lean on a man who has always always has to be forward thinking, and that's Notre Dame Athletic Director Jack Swarbrick. Jack, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. Joining the uh, Smith brothers here, the bearded the bearded brothers. <laughs> that's right. These these aren't just quarantine beards. We're 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 uh, hard and fast beard guys before and after the quarantine. You guys are committed to it. I, I was for a long time. My 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 wife uh, actually married me without seeing me without a beard. Um, (laughs) all right this one might be a little bit of a heavy question to start with but what was the most stressful moment of your job during this pandemic um the period of time where we spiked in the football program trying to understand what was contributing to it um being sure our athletes were safe um and how we were going to manage going forward and the decisions we had to make in the midst of it about when we felt it was safe to play. That that was an intense 10 days. Jack, and just following up with that a little bit, you know, I asked um, Javon McKinley after the first game back on October um, 10th, I said, uh, you know, kind of what went through your mind during the outbreak And he said, I wondered if I had played my last game here. And I'm wondering if it ever got to that point where that thought flashed through your mind, or at least you might have thought that this really potentially special season might have a chance to get completely derailed. Um, Less related to the football spike and more related to the university spike. You know, we had been pretty clear that, we only intended to compete in athletics if school was in session from a residential perspective. And when the school had the spike and 
Father John, you know, made the statement that if we don't get this under control, we're going to have to not not continue with the residential model. That was the that was the one point in time where I thought, man, um, not a hundred percent sure we're going to have a season. Jack, I, I know you're at games. Um, what what kind of how has it been just experiencing what it's like in the stadium this season? And um, just beyond maybe this season, what what how do you experience game? Do you find do you get as invested as a normal fan do it, or you kind of stay calm and collected? How, how do you experience uh, the ups and downs of another Dame season and another Dame games? Let me start with the experience of this season because Brian alluded to it the other day, but I was blown away by the atmosphere. I mean, no, knowing that we had ten thousand people. You know, for Clemson, 11,000. Sometimes it was 7,500. You still felt a, a pretty good atmosphere. The, the, the band played a big role in that. But, but the students who were there, they were, they were great. Uh, the, the energy they provided. So, you know, especially as we went into other venues where there was nobody, like the recent visit to Boston College. Um, that's a tough atmosphere to play in. Um, and, and so... I was so pleased that we were able to still have a semblance of a game day atmosphere and, and that all that credit goes to largely the student body, but also the faculty and staff that came. And, and as I said, especially our band, um, you know, I, I tend to, um, I, I, I'm absolutely caught up in the games as you'd expect, but I, but I'm also very focused on all the other dynamics that are going on and I'll, I'll typically tour the stadium pregame to make sure everything is as it should be. Um, if a player gets injured, that consumes me. So I'll sometimes people will see me when someone goes to the locker room that I'll be trailing behind because um, I want to know what the circumstance is. And sometimes I'm I'm facilitating bringing the parent into the locker room uh, in, in the case of an injury. So. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I certainly live and die with the outcomes. I don't, I, I don't let myself cheer much. Um, just, just because I've got to keep some, some detachment, but uh, I, I'm, I'm absolutely, my mood is so Im, impacted by it. And uh, rarely do I get to sleep until dawn on Sunday. Uh, I know you guys have the same thing because you're writing. I'm just, I'm just a, an emotional wreck, even when we win. So I'll, I'll rewatch the game at home from like one to three, and then just just try and unwind. We're actually tonight. We're actually writing until dawn on Sunday. Yeah, uh, but uh, and we and we do cheer, but only for the press box food. It was pretty good this year. Uh, related to football, and this these two questions kind of couple around Clark Lee. Um, you know, there's reports that Clark interviewed for the Vanderbilt head coaching job. First question related to that is in this climate where everybody's squeezing down their budgets, can you, can you get to a point where you can play tug of war with somebody that's that talented? The second part about it is I always get asked about what I think about the coach and waiting concept when Brian leaves. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Sure. Um, let, let me say first, and I've, I've said it before, 
I have um, mirror obligations, which I don't view to be intention at all, but, but I'm very conscious of both of them. One is I have an obligation to every employee who works here to try and help them reach their professional goals. And for a lot of assistant coaches, that means helping them become head coaches. And I take that obligation seriously. I'm balancing that out against my obligation to have the best program we can have and be as successful as we can be. And so the form that normally takes is um, being clear about how much we value somebody um, so that they understand that as they head into this process, but also being a resource to them. I mean, I've, I, I love being in that role. And sometimes I'll counsel people against the job, not because I'm trying to keep them here, but because I think it's a bad job. Um, and other times I'll be very encouraging. I'll be calling the other AD saying, look, you shouldn't hire anybody but this person because they're so good. Um, so you, you're trying to balance that. Um, I can say one thing definitively that I think will surprise most people. Um, but in my 12 plus years here, we've never lost an assistant coach to compensation. Um, we, we are prepared. Now we'll, we'll sometimes decide not to, not to go to a certain level of compensation because we don't think not because we can't do it. It's because we don't think it makes sense. It, it screws up the salary structure of the staff or we have a different view of that coach than they may have of themselves. But, but that's not a reason. When somebody leaves here, it's, it, it's not because we wanted to keep that person and, and couldn't compete uh, from a compensation perspective. Um, <clears throat> you know, um, I'm missing the last part. The of the concept. Oh, yeah. Uh, not a fan. Um, uh, the, the, we have sort of criteria for it. I want to know with certainty that the head coach is leaving and the timetable on which the head coach is leaving. And that needs to be relatively short term. Under those circumstances, it can work. But when you extend it out over time or you don't have a definite end date to it, I think it's terribly destabilizing. Um, and, and so, you know, I won't hesitate to tell a coach that I could see them as a future head coach at Notre Dame. Um, if I have that view, but, you know, we did it with Neil because I knew Muffet's timetable. It was near term and Neil had a lot of attractive offers to do other things. And so not to talk her out of those things, but just to say, understand, here's our timetable. Here's, here's when we're prepared to make you our head coach. Um, and, and, and it worked out great. Jack, in, in terms of the 2021 football season, how much planning have you been able to start doing? Um, and when you do that planning, do you build budgets accounting for fans? How do you how do you sort of map that out? And is there any indication of what the schedule may be like if it will have a chance to return to what it normally would be? Yeah, Tyler, we haven't done a lot. Um, we're going to start that right after the first of the year. Um, and, and, and your question sort of nailed all the elements of it, right? But let's assume the vaccine's fully deployed and come August, the country is relatively safe. What's the comfort level of people returning to a crowd of 78,000? None of us knows. And so you, you just have to project something of a guess to try and figure that out. I do not anticipate the stadium returning to full capacity next year, uh, you know, in, in terms of fans' willingness. I just, I just don't think that that'll happen that quickly. 
Um, and, and so we, we, we got to figure that out as it relates to the schedule. Um, I think those, those conversations will start in earnest again after we, we get through the end of the season. Um, we've been clear our, our intent, our preference is to return to our independent status, but to do that, I've got to know that the PAC 12 is going to allow out of conference competition, right? And the big 10 is going to allow out of conference competition. I haven't had those discussions yet. Jack, we know how reliant that uh, the football program has the other sports, has your entire budget. It's all so much hinged on that. I believe you've got uh, a fundraiser coming up. Can you kind of enlighten people what's going on with that and how they can kind of help? Yeah, as we approach the year end, we just thought it was a good time to – you know, we're, we're, we're always soliciting support and we just decided to try a different form of doing it. And so we're going to do, we're going to do an event on the 15th, um, the five hour evening event where we're going to tell the stories of Notre Dame athletics and, and, and try and communicate a, a little bit more about what we do um, as people contemplate um, opportunities to support us. I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that at this period of time, there are a lot of compelling places to offer support. There, there are people who are hungry. There are people who are unemployed. Um, all we're intending to say here is if you have a special passion for Notre Dame athletics that you want to act on, this is a good time to do it. And, and our focus is on being able to continue to, to, to meet our commitments to our student athletes in the unique way Notre Dame does it, right? This is about making sure that they still have study abroad opportunities and summer intern opportunities and the counseling we provide. Um, I, as we face these very challenging financial circumstances coming, going forward, I'm trying to make sure we don't, we don't lose that, that, that we're able to still say that we met our commitments to the young men and women who choose to come to Notre Dame. And that online broadcast will be Tuesday, December 15th from 6.42 p.m. Eastern through midnight. It's called The Fight for the Notre Dame Student-Athlete, and it can be watched at und.com forward slash the fight. And they're raising contributions for the Rockney Athletics Fund, um, which uh, helps support student-athletes um, in the form of financial aid and some summer uh, abroad programs. Um, Jack? Recently, the uh, Knight Commission recommended that the FBS should break away from the NCAA. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, and do you think that is a realistic path in the future? Um, no, it didn't, it didn't strike me as particularly uh, realistic. Um, uh, there's already a lot about football which is separated, um, and, and I don't think um, – there's a need to go beyond what we do now with the important role the CFP plays in, 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 in setting some standards. I think the CFP can do more. Um, I think we saw this year the challenge of coordinating across the, the conferences, and, and, and I think maybe there are opportunities to coordinate a little more closely. But it doesn't argue for me to rep, for replicating the bureaucracy, the NCAA, into, a, into another organization. So um, not – not a big fan of the concept. I, I do think on the other end of the spectrum, we've got to continue to look at ways to operate the other sports more efficiently. Um, uh, 
you know, more regional competition. As we went through conference realignment, geography got thrown out the window. And, and so do, do, can we find ways to, to be more efficient in the scheduling of our Olympic sports? So they still get the same great competitive opportunities, but they're not traveling as much as they need to. I think there may be opportunities to operate on what we call a confederated basis, a sport basis, sort of independent of the traditional NCAA rules where you get the national governing body more involved. So um, that's, that's sort of my focus, much less so than trying to do a fundamental restructure like moving football to a different organization. Jack, way back when uh, this all kind of was gaining momentum, the, the effect of COVID-19 on college sports the NCAA went ahead and gave everybody kind of a blanket extra year of eligibility for football and, and some of the other, or I guess the other fall sports, but specific to football, you know, I would think most of the 13 guys that that would affect in the expiring eligibility class are going to kind of go ahead and move forward anyway. So going over 85 isn't that big of a deal. The, the I guess the issue to me is, then they're going to clamp down and go back to 85 in 2022. It, it seems like that's going to be, you're either going to have to push people out the door at that point, or you're going to have to have tiny little recruiting classes. I mean, have you and Brian talked a little bit about roster management when that eventuality comes? We have talked about it. I've talked about it more with Brian Polian at this point, uh, who sort of, keeps a big picture on the roster management um, dynamic. What we, um, what we suggested might be considered was a graduation over a couple of years, a few years, right? Just don't go cold turkey back to 85. But in, in fairness to this, the students and in desire not to be pushing anybody out, could you maybe graduate it back down? So you gotta be, you know, in another year, you gotta be at 90 and then you gotta be at 85. Um, We didn't gain much traction with that or haven't so far. Um, So we do face the reality you've described. Um, I think we'll be better off than most places because we very much view this in the academic term of four years and to graduation. And, and, and so we'll, we'll continue that, you know, that, that metric probably resulted in this class being a little bigger, knowing we had that freedom. Um, but that's a good thing, I think, right now. Um, and you got you, it's important to keep in mind that this will be accompanied by an expansion of the one-time transfer opportunity. So you will see a lot more movement. Um, and so young people who, who, who are maybe in a roster spot where they don't see as, as much of a future as they might have hoped, um, are going to have an opportunity to go somewhere and play right away. So I think on the other side, that'll help thin the roster a little bit. Um, but it's uncharted territory, and the, the, the issue you raise is a good one, Eric. None of us have navigated it before, yeah. and uh, we're going to have some interesting times trying to figure it out. Remember back when you were in school, they said we'd never use math once we got done with it in elementary school. Well, <laughs> they were wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Jack, related to recruiting, the the FBS has been in a dead period since the pandemic had essentially started. 
and that's extended through April. Um, have there been any preparations or discussions of what it will look like if after April you guys are allowed to host recruits and what kind of protocol you would want both your staff and, and recruits to follow? Or is that another thing where you just kind of have to wait and see how things develop as, as time moves on? Yeah, and I'm not even sure it's going to be April. Um, you know, this thing has been extended many times and it'll largely be dependent on how the country's doing relative to the pandemic. I, I like what Gene Smith said yesterday, the, the athletic director at Ohio State, about um, we have to take some of the some of the good that we've gotten out of this and and keep it going forward, right? So let's shorten recruiting periods. Let's let's take different approaches to visits and time on the road, and and I think that's a very healthy way to look at it. I um, I'm not looking for an indefinite dead period because I think it's very important for students and their families to be able to get on campus here. But I also don't want to go back just blindly say, okay, dead period's over back to where we were. Let's use this opportunity to say, how can, how can we recruit more effectively, uh, more efficiently um, and, and, and maybe create a little less pressure on these young people and their families. Jack, I guess from my standpoint, I'm anticipating once we get to February and March, then the infection numbers are going to start going in the other direction. Now, how dramatically, I don't know. But I'm wondering, as as Notre Dame plans the spring semester, what do you think are the chances that there will be 15 spring practices? And would you try to use the same timetable as usual, or would you – condense those and maybe move them back a little bit further in the spring. Yeah. I think anything you can move later is better um, because I have the same view that you do that we'll start to get better um, both as the weather changes and as the vaccine is deployed. Um, but yeah, I do see a full spring. Um, I think it's going to be important, especially with as many mid years as we have to, to, to try and make sure we have a full opportunity to get them acclimated our challenge is going to be um, this will be the first time in the school's history where all, every sport but football is competing at the same time because we took those fall sports and moved part of their season into the spring. So we'll have spring volleyball. We'll have spring soccer. Uh, we're going to have, you know, everything going. Um, February, March will be absolutely crazy here. Um, and, when you couple that with the fact we're in a hiring freeze and we've cut our budget by 20%, figuring out exactly how to do this is not going to be easy. Uh, we'll get there. We owe it to the student athletes, but it's going to be a period of time like no other. <clears throat> now think of the guys you, you frequently interface with are Aaron and his, and his friends at fighting Irish media. We don't have the personnel to cover that many live sports going on at once. Um, how are we going to do it? How are we going to meet our obligation to, to, to produce a broadcast for the ACC network when you've got volleyball, baseball, track and field, um, and soccer all going on in the same Friday evening? Jack, I, I've been told that you're a bit of a, a music buff. Um, have there been any artists or albums that you've really leaned on or enjoyed uh, during the, the pandemic? Um, it's It's – it's been a central part of the pandemic for us. So in, in, our, in our virtual town halls, um, I always use a walk-up song. 
uh, a different one each time that I try and link to a, to a quote we're using and try and make some connectedness to it. Um, I know that I've bored my staff silly uh, with this, but it, it, it has been that opportunity sort of to reflect a lot on, on the role music's played in my life and how important it is to me. I mean, so sometimes we were marking events like John Prine's death. I think John Prine is the best <clears throat> songwriter of my generation. And so my staff had to hear all about John Prine and, 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 and that dynamic. Um, you know, we did some things where we, we tuned into some event in music history. I, I used the Newport Jazz Festival where Dylan plugged in and uh, talked about that as a moment of, of, of taking a risk uh, and, and going big and, and having confidence you could do it. So we, we, my staff found out how eclectic my tastes are. Uh, we were, we were all, over the, all over the place, but it was fun. And we've, we've captured you know, the song and the quote, and we're gonna do some things on the other side of this to sort of provide a commemorative uh, for everybody to, to celebrate having made it through this, but it'll be about the songs and the quotes. Well, I'll tell you, it has been big for me during the pandemic because honestly, it helps me sleep better at night. I listen to some nice music before I go to sleep and it kind of fends off all the crazy stuff that's been going on in our world. So I'm with you on that, Jack. But I'm you, know what, you, you know what's done that for me? Um, probably shouldn't reveal this, but um, well, I've been watching a lot of old movies and I mean really old movies, right? Like, so I've... Uh, Bogart and I have spent a lot of time together at night when I'm trying to go to sleep. <laughs> there you go. Well, you, you mentioned eclectic musical taste, so I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you could only take one CD, LP, or streaming, and you only had these choices, which one would you choose? Taylor Swift or the Ramones? Ramones. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I didn't need a nanosecond to think about that one. Wow. You are now my new hero. Uh, yeah, Eric is a giant Ramones fan. Um, I'm curious with, obviously, thinking about concerts right now, it seems like a very far off concept, but are there any artists out there that you would be pushing hard for um, to try to get into a Notre Dame Stadium concert? Yeah, it's a great question because, um, you know, one of the evolutions in in performance music is that stadium acts are few and far between now. Mm -hmm. It used to be easier to do. And it, it's just the nature of concerts that, that it's much rarer uh, than it, than it used to be. Um, so I, I, I tend to think more in terms of, um, you know, sort of the multiple act dynamic that goes on. So I, I, um, you know, um, I'd, 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 I'd love to have, you know, one of the shows that has three or four prime, you know, really prime country artists that travel during the summer to come and, and, and do, do that here. Um, you know, Kenny Chesney does that uh, during the summer. Um, you know, I'm, I, I don't, I don't think it's in the future, but um, our, our general counsel, Marianne Corr was responsible for bringing Springsteen here when she was in school Um and uh, it would be it would be nice full circle to bring bring Bruce and the E Street Band back here uh, for another time. 
Well, that that's always a popular choice for sports journalists for whatever reason. Sports journalists love love Springsteen. So uh, that's all we got for you, Jack. We really appreciate appreciate you taking time for your busy schedule to join us today on the podcast. Well, it's my pleasure, and I love the uh, far-reaching nature of this discussion. <laughs> Believe me, I love the far-reaching nature of your answers, <laughs> especially the last one. <laughs> Thanks, guys. We'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but first, a word from Coors Light. The holidays can definitely add some un- unwanted stress. These days, everything is go, go, go. Nonstop hustle has taken over, and it's kind of a lot. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the cans or bottles even turn blue when chilled to perfection. Coors Light is brewed with a three-step cold process, cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged, so it's actually made to chill. As the games are getting hotter, reach for the mountain cold refreshment of a cold Coors Light. You can even have Coors delivered to your door. Go to get.coorslight.com and find local delivery options near you. So when you want to reset your busy life, Reach for the beer that's made to chill, Coors Light. Celebrate responsibly, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for the end of the season. First one I have for us, Eric, is over under 85 rushing yards per game for Kyron Williams in the remaining games. You know, when I first... uh looked at that i thought you had put 85 for the remaining games <laughs> remaining total i thought boy this is the easiest layup in the history of the show I must have thought i was really drunk <laughs> yeah 85 is a good number you know and and he's gonna face you know a good run a very good run defense in clemson and then ohio state and alabama are decent alabama's really improved defensively Ever since the Ole Miss game, they've been getting better and better. And I'm assuming that they're going to be in the playoff, and those would be the teams. I'm going to stay over because if Notre Dame, Notre Dame is going to ride him. You know, they're going to they're going to say, you know, we've we've rotated enough Sebo and Chris Tyree in that we can ride that horse to the end. So I'm going to go over. I am going to go under, and it's mostly because I think the odds of one of the remaining games being not a great game for him will significantly impact that the average because obviously the sample size is small. So he could have a really good game and then one, one poor game. Um, and that, that would, that would skew the number below 85. So I think it's, it's one of the more fascinating things about the, how the season will play out. And I think it'll play a big, uh, certainly play a big role in how whatever Notre Dame's fate is with how much sex success they're able to continue to have with Kyron Williams in the running game. Next one I have for us is more receptions in the remaining games, Ben Skoranek or Michael Mayer? Well, I mean, Mayer's got more for the season. And I think, again, the one team that we know that their Notre Dame is going to play is Clemson. And I think Clemson's defense sets up to be more of a Michael Mayer game than a Ben Skoranek game, at least in a rematch. Um, so I'm going to go with Michael Mayer on this one. Yeah, I think it's going to be really close. Uh, Skoranek's receptions have pretty steadily increased or become more consistent, I guess, um, in the latter half of the season, um, certainly partially related to his health early in the season. But um, I think there will probably be more plays designed for Mayer. Obviously, we see 
lot of those short crossing routes and those third down conversions that Notre Dame really likes to lean on him and they trust him in those situations. But I, I get the sense that Skoranek works better with book when book has to improvise. They, they seem to be on the same page a lot when it comes to those situations. And just because the competition is going to be so tough down the stretch here, I expect that Ian book is going to be put into several of those situations and scramble situations. So I think that Ben Skoranek, I'll predict will will have the slight advantage in terms of receptions in the remaining games over Michael Mayer. Another reason why I gave the nod to Mayer is because if Notre Dame is serious about trying to expand Lindsay, Braden Lindsay, even a little bit, his playing time will cut into Ben's. Yeah, absolutely. That was a, that was a concern of mine in terms of which I was choosing. I mean, just, it seems like it, we're, we've come, we've come so far with that really not happening. Um, that doesn't mean it won't happen. And I know that they're doing even more stuff with two, some two running back looks where they get Chris Tyree and Kyron Williams on the field more. And um, those tend to be with heavy tight end sets. So, um, they're, they're, that could limit Ben Skronik's opportunities as well. Uh, next question I have for us will, is, will Jeremiah Usukoromoa win any of the following, the Bronco Nagurski Trophy, the Buckus Award, or the Bednarik Award? Well, out of those three, I would say that Nagurski is the one he has the best chance because he's already a finalist for that. The other one, he's a semifinalist. I, I, I tried to think if any of these really – relied on film study and, and deep dives on these players to name because sometimes it's just sports writers voting. For example, I'm on the Groza, on the punter Ray Guy, I'm on the Bolitnikoff, and I haven't seen all the guys play. I base a lot of my my thoughts on stats, although you know, guys that I've seen play, like C D Lamb last year, I didn't care what his stats were. Right. I thought he was amazing. Yeah. Um, but Jeremiah's stats aren't going to jump out at you because so much of what he does is dissuade you from throwing to who he's covering or it's an incomplete pass, which doesn't show up in your individual stats. So I would, I would say I'd give him a chance to win the Nagurski. I mean, I looked at the other four guys and I think the kid from Tulsa has a really good shot, but if it's not him, I think Jeremiah has as good a chance as anybody in that group. So is this a? Are you saying yes or no? Is it, is it yes or no? Your answer. You said a chance. Well, I tried to muddy it up enough that you would know. So I will say. I'll pop that segment. We need we need firm answers. I will say yes. He'll okay. win the Nagurski. <laughs> I'm I'm going to say yes as well. I, I I think before the Nagurski Trophy finalist list came out, I probably would have said no and and been pretty comfortable saying no. Um, but the other four finalists alongside him, I mean one. Certainly, like you mentioned, the Tulsa linebacker, Zayvon Collins, has had a really good season. But he's a, he's also a Tulsa linebacker, so I don't think a lot of people are going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, one of the other finalists is a Coastal Carolina defensive end, Taron Jackson. Um, and then one of the other ones is an Iowa defensive tackle, Davion Nixon, who's having a really good year as well. But those guys, I don't know that those, those are players that are going to get sort of the benefit of the doubt based on program recognition or name recognition. Um, so to me, I think it might boil down to maybe a two-man race between Jeremiah and Alabama cornerback Patrick Sertan. Um, so, I, I, so I'll go yes because I think that he has a decent chance of winning that. I'm, I, I'm, you'd you'd think that he would probably have good chances at the other ones too. Um, I, I obviously we're not as certain about what the finalist list will look like and if he even makes the finalist list for the Buckus Award or the Bednarik Award. I would think he has a good chance at least with the Buckus. I think the Bednarik might. He might his 
chances might be hurt by Kyle Hamilton also being a semifinalist on that list. So I don't know if um, that maybe takes some of the votes away from him to make the finalist list. But um, I think that uh, he has a good chance. And I think it's, he's definitely deserving this, the stats or the, the stats were the thing that I thought would hold him back because he just doesn't have the eye popping stats for people that haven't necessarily watched Notre Dame play. But I think uh, he's that- got some TV moments. I mean, he had that Absolutely. moment of, taking that ball away from Travis Etienne and run into the end zone. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next one is over under two and a half first team AP All-Americans for Notre Dame. I'll go under on this. I, I think they'll have several people make the tiers of teams. I think the three that are going to get first team votes are Kyle Hamilton, Jeremiah Wusukoromoa, and Liam Eikenberg but I don't expect all three of them to make it. I, I think Jeremiah will definitely. And then Kyle may make it or Liam, but not both of them. Okay. Maybe I should have put the line at one and a half. I felt pretty confident that two would, but I felt also confident that three wouldn't. So that's where I settled with the line at two and a half. I, I think Eichenberg and Owusu Kormo both will. Um, and, and that Kyle Hamilton won't. Um, I think, Kyle's in a similar situation as Jeremiah. He doesn't have crazy stats. He doesn't have interceptions this year. Um, and there's a lot of, there are a lot of respected safeties in college football this year. There's the, yeah. the, the Thorpe award semifinalists. A lot of those are safeties. Trevor Morg from TCU, Kyrie Elam from Florida, Tyke Smith, West Virginia. So a number of different guys. So I think it's going to be hard to break that first team at safety um, that, and, and harder than maybe it will be for, for Liam Eikenberg and Jeremiah Usukoromo at, at offensive line and, and linebacker. The last one I have for us is, will Ian Book be a Heisman Trophy finalist? Well, when you say finalist, I know that you mean, will he get to, to the virtual thing in New York? Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, because there's never the same number from one year to the next of right. finalists. So mine is kind of conditional. Mine is if if Clemson if Notre Dame sweeps Clemson, there's going to be enough people that push Ian from maybe sixth to third or fourth in the balloting. One of the reasons is people aren't tired of him. You know he hasn't been the name that's out there. I think Trevor Lawrence suffers from Trevor Lawrence fatigue. People are tired of seeing him and his perfect hair, <laughs> and he was so good as a freshman that he has to throw for 600 yards to get people's attention. The guy is unbelievably good. He's going to be the first pick of the draft. But Ian doesn't have that issue. So the question then comes down to, will Notre Dame sweep Clemson? Okay, I'll put him as yes. He'll be a Heisman finalist. I don't feel feel that deep in my soul, but I'll go ahead and throw it out there. I'll give them what they want. All right, we'll have a a disagreement then because I'm going with no – um, I do think that he does have a chance if Notre Dame beats Clemson, he goes out there and outduels Trevor Lawrence, um, accounts for five touchdowns or something like that. He's Ian's another one. He doesn't have the stats. He does not have the numbers. And it's not, it's not even really that close um, yeah. in a lot of the, the, the passing categories. Um, so I think that holds him back um, and partially because just the beginning of the season wasn't that great for him. Now, obviously, Trevor Lawrence has a part of the season where he didn't he didn't even play because he had he had COVID. But I think uh, it's tough too because the way the Heisman voting works is we vote for three people. You only put three three final three names down on your on your on your ballot. So 
three is a very short list, and I'm not sure that Ian will crack a, a lot of those lists if it's only if, because it's only three. So that makes it difficult. I think just at the quarterback position, you got Trevor Lawrence, Kyle Trask, Mac Jones, and Justin Fields. I think maybe Justin Fields' chances may be hurt because of Ohio State's lack of playing this season. But um, I think and, and Devontae Smith is making a, a heck of a case too as a wide receiver to be considered and. Um, Jared Patterson as a running back uh, is putting up crazy numbers in a, in a small sample size too. So I, I think that uh, I just think that it's going to be really hard for Ian book to get, get there, even though, even if, even if he leads a Notre Dame season, uh, he, as he has led a Notre Dame undefeated season, I just think that he doesn't have the statistics that'll pull him into that and, and give him a, a spot on the people's ballots as frequently as, as he would re- need to, to be a finalist. All right. Now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys are, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at T James NDI and Eric's at E Hanson NDI. First one we have is from at Coffee Dark Roast. Was the plan against Syracuse to let them run in order to stop the quick passing game? And he notes there's the st- stats of 185 yards passing versus 229 rushing. Does Clark Lee change the defense's plan? And then he moves on to Clemson. Travis Etienne is averaging 16.2 rushes for 64.4 yards in the last five games. Does Clark Lee let Etienne rush more in order to keep the safeties back and protect the air? Okay. If I forget one of those, I'm not as good at Brian, as Brian Kelly at those multiple <laughs> questions. So, no, it wasn't the plan to let Syracuse run. That was a – they were number 126 out of 127 in total offense coming in. The plan was to hold them to under 200 yards total. Um, there were some bad run fits in that game. Um, and you get one player out of position, and that sometimes happens. And the way Notre Dame's defense is structured, I think if they're fully healthy, you're going to see pretty good run fits. Um, do you just let – Travis run and maybe play the safeties back a little bit more. The interesting thing about Clemson was in their last game against Virginia Tech, they made a huge commitment to trying to run. When you look at them compared to the other teams that are in playoff contention, Florida and Clemson are the two that really don't look like playoff teams when it comes to running. And they had Trevor Lawrence running the ball against uh, Virginia Tech. So I think Clemson is certainly going to emphasize that they're going to want more than 34 yards on 33 carries. Uh, But I think Clark Lee has to change up the game plan a little bit to account for Trevor Lawrence, to account for things that Clemson learned about. But you still want to do what, what Notre Dame has done all season, and that's put people in third and long. That's why Notre Dame is number two in the country and third down conversion defense is because they can get you in third and long. Yeah, I echo a lot of your thoughts on all those topics there. I, to me, like statistics aren't always a reflection of the game plan. It's, it's also a reflection of the execution, and Notre Dame just didn't execute. I mean, 140 of those yards came on two runs. Um, so if you subtract that. Uh, uh, Syracuse's running total is very, is is much less. Um, so I, I think they just have to execute better, and I think that's something they will continue to work on and, and try to uh, um, 
perfect going into the Clemson game because it needs to be perfect against Travis Etienne because he's a guy that can do that. I mean, even in the 2018 college football playoff game against Clemson, Notre Dame did a pretty decent job of keeping him in check until in the in the second – I believe it was the second half he had the long run um, to, for a touchdown that he, he kind of broke through, and that, that really skewed his stats to, to make it look like a, a better day for him than, it, than it, it was throughout. So they have to keep him in check, and I think you just – I think – there may be a little bit more balance in terms of Notre Dame, maybe not selling out as more against the run, but um, I think you still have to to limit the running game as much as possible and, and take your chances in the secondary and rely on your defensive backs to make, make more plays and, and win one-on-one more one-on-one matchups than it did in the first game against Clemson, which, which is a lot to ask because Clemson has talent, but you got You have to have your, your players step up and make plays too. Next question is from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. Since Jared Patterson went down with injury, Notre Dame's offensive line failed to dominate versus two defenses vastly inferior to Clemson. Now Notre Dame will have a player at center starting his second game and going up and get an elite defensive lineman in Tyler Davis. What impact do you think this will have on the game? Well, you know – Again, I sometimes will get caught up on the way the question's phrased. And Notre Dame, I would say this. He's absolutely right. Syracuse and and, uh, North Carolina's defenses aren't in the same realm as Clemson's. However, Notre Dame did put up a season high for offensive yards against Syracuse, 568, and they had 6.9 yards per play against North Carolina. So I'm not sure that, that... they didn't dominate at least to the extent that they needed to, to, to not only win the game, but impress the college football playoff committee as it relates to Clemson and having a new center against a really good front seven and, and what appears to be a healthier front seven for Clemson. You know, I think Tommy Kramer coming back is a bigger lift than people realize because when it was Josh Slug and Zeke Correll together, defenses could mess with that combination. They weren't used to playing next to each other. Uh, they weren't used to playing together, at least with Kramer. Then you've got a veteran guy on each side and, and a really, you know, pretty, pretty big dudes that, you know, could push people around. Whether it's Lug or Correll, I think that's going to help the center position a lot. Yeah, I think I agree with you there. The the question about or the, the statement about Notre Dame's offensive line not dominating. I think if you're expect if you were expecting the offensive line to just pulverize the 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 uh, the opposing teams the last two games from start to finish with with two new guys in there, I think that's that was being a little bit uh, naive. Um, but they didn't do poorly. I mean. Notre, Another stat to add to your stats, Notre Dame averaged more rushing yards in the last two games with 241 than it did in the previous eight games with 233 and a half yards. So it'll certainly be harder without Jarrett Patterson and the addition of Tyler Davis. Um, but I, I do think with just having the set, the center being changed, you, you will be able to have more help from the guards with Tommy Kramer and Aaron Banks on both sides. Um, and also the way Notre Dame's outside zone game is designed. The center doesn't have to just absolutely dominate. They have the center has to impede progress and and, and not um, let their person um, 
penetrate, let their defender penetrate and, and blow up the play, but they don't have to like knock Tyler Davis back into, into the secondary. Like that's not a requirement of the, this, the, this, the run scheme. So I think, uh, one thing Tyler Davis will also impact is sort of picking up blitzes. I think he'll, he'll make it harder um, because they may need more help on him. Um, and so it may be harder to get into inside blitzes um, because he will occupy people, but um, certainly Notre Dame's going to have their hands full with Tyler Davis and, and it'll be a diff- more difficult challenge. Um, but I, I think Notre Dame will be able to game plan around that and be prepared for it. Next question is from at Joey Salvatore, a somewhat similar question. Um, but expand it a little bit beyond that. How do you guys think the offensive line, especially with Carell and Lug, will hold up against the returning players for Clemson's front seven? Yeah, well, I, I think the big question that that's not in there is who's going to start between Carell and Lug. I got that in my chat yesterday. If they were both, and I'll, I'll kind of throw that at you, Tyler. If they were both healthy, who would you start? And then I'll tell you how I answered it. Cause I know you didn't read the transcript. <laughs> You're right. I'm guilty as charged. I have not read the transcript yet. Uh, I would go with Zeke Corral. If he's healthy. Um, I think he has a better upside. I think he, he plays the position better. He he's probably stronger at the point of attack um, than Josh Luck. He, he's less experienced, but I think he is better suited to play center in Notre Dame's offensive line than Josh Lug is. I also went with Zeke Carell. He's been training for that position ever since he's been on campus. Lug gives you a little bit more size, but I think Lug is better at guard or tackle. Probably tackle is his best position. Um, so I, I absolutely would go with Zeke Carell. If they're both the same amount of healthy, they both had health issues at different times. Sure. As for the – the Clemson's front seven, I mean, the other guys we got in Tyler Davis or, or James Skalski and Mike Jones Jr. who didn't play against Notre Dame. I don't know, like, even if they are playing as they, it, it seems like they will against Notre Dame, how are they playing at their peaks? I mean, they're probably not playing as well as they probably were at before they had injury issues. So I think while it, it is a concern that the, they have maybe better players there, I think we're, when we, Notre Dame might not be facing them at their best either. So I do think the biggest impact I'll have is probably Notre Dame isn't going to be able to wear out Clemson's front seven like it seemed to do against against Clemson the first time around um, because its depth will be in better shape and they won't have to rely on uh, top-line guys the entire time. And then some of the guys that were forced to be top-line guys against Clemson last time will be depth options that can rotate in there and help out. So I think that'll be the biggest difference. But like, like we mentioned with facing Tyler Davis um, in the previous question, I do think that because it's just the center position and that, that there are two guys that they can trust next to him at, with Tommy Kramer and Aaron Banks, I think they will be able to, to handle it. But certainly uh, anytime, I mean, that's that I, I've talked about that before, like an offensive line can be really good and also not play really well. Like it, it is a play by play five mans working together. Like it is, it is not easy to predict. Um, and so even if Notre Dame has the best offensive line in the country, it can still come out and not play that way. So it, it comes down to the players executing and, and, and showing that they can do that more than once. All right. Next question is from the Jackal at the underscore Jack attack. Will Notre Dame be able to slow down Cornell Powell this time around? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, Cause he's really been on fire since the Boston college game, which yeah. was the game right before, they played Notre Dame. He's he's a handful. 
Um, it seemed like they were more concerned with Amari Rogers going into that game, and they were going to kind of live with what Cornell Powell did. Um, so, I mean, Cornell hurt them mostly on third downs, I guess, and they only converted four of those out of 15. I, I guess I think there would certainly be more emphasis on trying to trying to um, limit him. It's just what are you willing to give up? That's the thing when you, especially when you play these elite teams, you can always say, okay, let's emphasize this, but you've got to give up something. What are you willing to give up? You know, are you willing to give up a safety in the run game to, to make life harder on Cornell Powell? So, I mean, maybe it just comes down to better technique by the, um, by the cornerbacks and, you know, that you still kind of live with them having a lot of one-on-one responsibilities with them. Yeah, I think there could be adjustment in terms of maybe trying to prevent not getting beat deep by him and and playing him a little bit differently and and knowing that he can beat you deep. And maybe there was less of a concern about that going into the first game and and he has shown more of a, a threat to do that moving forward. So that may be an adjustment, but like I mentioned earlier, I think it's going to come down to Notre Dame making, winning some of those one-on-one matchups because Cornell Powell is almost certainly going to be matched up one-on-one at times with a Notre Dame defensive back, and the Notre Dame defensive back is going to have to win those. And um, I, 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 I don't think you can you can rely on Trevor Lawrence not making the throws that need to be made. Um, so it's going to have to come down to the defensive backs making the plays that need to be made in order to stop the, the passing game. And obviously pressuring Trevor Lawrence is going to have a lot to do with that as well. Huge. Uh, next question is from Michael Kenny at Domer 747. Given Notre Dame has already played Clemson once, what will be the hardest thing for Notre Dame to do now or repeat in the rematch? And what will they have the most success with in the rematch? Um, well, I, I think it's hard to have the element of surprise and breaking tendencies. You know, they know a little bit what worked against them and what didn't work against them. So do you want to try to go to a different set of plays, a different philosophy completely. I mean, the one thing you're going to want to do with Clemson is you're still going to want to have some semblance of ball control. You're going to want to keep their offensive plays down. You know, Virginia Tech was really successful for about two and a half quarters before they just turned into a turnover machine. Clemson ended up running 52 plays against Virginia Tech. Um, And, Again, Clemson's going to do some things different too, but I still think ball control is going to have to be an element of that, and I think that's what Notre Dame will do well, and they'll do some of that, not just running the ball, but shorter patterns to tight ends and running backs. Um, But, you know, again, I'd like to get inside of Clark Lee's head and figure out how, how he's going to be as effective on first and second down as he was um, because I know I know Notre Dame will play well on third down. Yeah, and Brian Kelly addressed this a little bit earlier this week in that uh, rematches, a lot of times they'll come down to what he, he believes that it's, it's, it comes down to physicality, playmakers making plays, and, and, and sticking to your fundamentals and, and not making mistakes. And so I think that, that that'll probably be true here. I don't, I don't know that either Clemson or Notre Dame are going to – 
throw like completely different things at, at the other team that they won't expect. It's just going to come down to who's better. I, I think, um, I think Notre Dame in terms of what will be the hardest to repeat, I think it's what I mentioned earlier in terms of wearing down the front seven. I think that'll be more difficult this time around um, with it, with Clemson's defense being healthier and having more depth and also coming off of a bye week, which obviously Notre Dame is too, but um, both teams will be relatively healthy going into the game. And I, I do think there is a chance that Notre Dame can throw some different things at Clemson in terms of its offense where Notre Dame didn't really rely on its speed that much against Clemson last time. Braden Lindsay wasn't involved. Um, Avery Davis was involved with the late, with the late um, post down the middle to tie the game. Um, I think they can maybe get him involved, maybe use Chris Tyree more and maybe those three guys are doing similar things, but they're different combinations and get, throwing different looks and maybe th- having m- multiple of those guys on the field at the same time. So I think there are different things that Tommy Reese can still do in the offense to, to th- add some wrinkles into what, what Notre Dame wants to do. But I think it's all, it's all going to sort of bloom from the same central idea of controlling the line of scrimmage and setting the tone and being able to run the ball and not putting your defense in a bad position. Next question is from Conrad at chief underscore two, two, two. What are your thoughts on the safeties development and recruiting? You know, that's, that's a question I've asked myself a couple times because you figure Kyle Hamilton has one more year, you know, Isaiah Pryor came in as a safety and is kind of pushed towards being a Rover, maybe the starter there next year in tandem with Paul Mawala. Um, and then you start to look at the younger guys and say, what's happened to Litchfield? Ajavon, you know, is KJ Wallace going to pan out here? Um, and you look at the recruiting class and you don't see huge numbers in terms of safeties, but I think what I'm probably overlooking when I, when I do that formula is that there are a lot of corners and a lot of talented corners that have safety skill sets and, you know, like Ramon Henderson and, uh, and maybe Isaiah Rutherford could, could be safeties. I think that's what Notre Dame's and, and I'd like to probably ask Brian Pullian about this, but I think that's part of their philosophy is get corners and then, convert them to safeties as they develop physically. Well, if we're going to be dreamers, let's, let's ask Terry Joseph about that. <laughs> I think, I, I think well, it, I meant because he's the recruiting coordinator. No, no, I know, I know, but I think, I think it, I, I, it was more of a comment on, we just don't, we don't have access to the, to the. Oh, I see. We, just, well, we do have access supposedly to Polian next week. So yeah, for, for signing day, but yeah, I, it would be, it would be interesting to hear what Terry yeah. Joseph's perspective is on that because it does seem like, okay, after Kyle Hamilton, what's, what's next? I, I know we've seen some of DJ Brown and Houston Griffith this year, but the fact that Sean Crawford moved over from cornerback to, to cut those guys in line wasn't necessarily a great sign. Um, so where are those guys at? What's his confidence level at? What are there at cornerbacks? Which, are, what are, which are the cornerbacks that could move? Um, those are all questions that I think we would like to know more about because I think that's probably what will end up happening, but I don't know that we have a great perspective on what that looks like. I think safety needs to be a pretty high priority in this 2022 recruiting class based on sort of just the numbers and talent they've brought in in the secondary. Um, Next question we have is from at Nick Planton. 
With Ian Book leaving and apparently Brendan Clark having knee issues, will Notre Dame look at the transfer portal for a quarterback? Anyone you think might be on their radar? Well, I absolutely think they're going to do some window shopping. That doesn't mean they're going to buy, and they typically do that. Um, you know, we saw last year with Nick McLeod, they were looking at Nick McLeod in January and were in contact with him and then didn't move on that until after what would have been spring practice until May. They didn't really move on Nick until May, and then it became – uh, a priority. And they also had to see if their numbers were going to line up, if they were going to have room, because a lot of times guys, after they get through spring practice, see where they are on the depth chart and say, I'm bailing, I'm, I'm going to go transfer. Well, since there was only one spring practice, there wasn't that bailout immediately right after spring. Right. We actually, ended up, we ended up, I think that's part of why we ended up seeing guys announce transfers this season. And people are like, why are right. kids transferring in the middle of a football season? It's like, well, they didn't really learn what their situation was until now. Right. Um, and also, I, I also think like it's just a tremendously stressful year. And if you're considering transferring, you want, you just want out. You don't want to be doing everything yeah. that you have to do to play a football season when you're not actually playing. But sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent there. No, that's okay. Um, but, you know, I think the very first thing is to figure out how serious Brendan Clark's knee issue is, which they're going to reevaluate after the season. I mean, if this is something that looks like it's going to be chronic and long lasting, then they really have to have more of an urgency. The other thing they're going to want to do, and again, I don't think they would jump in January and bring somebody in the spring is they're going to want to take a look at Drew Pine and Tyler Buckner and see what they have. And then they can kind of say, okay, let's now you're going to miss out on a couple of people that want to go early and get in early. But, I mean, there's a lot of good grad transfer quarterbacks who don't come in until the summer and are very productive. And and uh, so I think grad transfer only. I don't think you look at an undergraduate transfer for that position. I think you're only going to commit to somebody for a year if you need that depth. Yeah, and it's we're going to learn a lot more about who those grand transfer quarterback options are in the coming month or so. I, I don't know that we know who, who those all will be yet. Um, so it, it would be total speculation on my part to name names. Obviously Mackenzie Milton is the headline grabber because of his career. Um, but obviously he has knee issues. And so it's a matter of figuring out what, where he's at health wise. And if obviously if there's any interest in, in coming to Notre Dame or something like that, but I think whatever happens, I think it'll probably be done discreetly because of the nature of the position I don't think you want to upset the quarterback room if you're not totally committed to a guy. And, and, and so I think they'll probably do their best to try and keep that as under wraps as possible until they feel compelled and, and convinced that they can get someone that they really want and need. Um, but I, I think it would, Notre Dame is always going to look, it would be irresponsible to not be aware of what is in the transfer portal. And, and if any of those players can help your, help your program. Next question is from Frank Sarah at Frank Sarah three. What players do you feel will return to Notre Dame next season? I think Robert Hainsey should return. He said. Um, I'm doing a story for Sunday's paper, Saturday night's web on all the guys with NFL futures. And I talked to Scott Wright primarily of DraftCountdown.com, but I also talked to Dane Brugler a little bit. The, Kind of the consensus, and this is where I would probably go too, is that I think Kurt Heinisch is really the only one where it might make some sense, and it depends on what Kurt wants to do. You know, I think that he 
wants to help his family. His dad has battled cancer and hasn't been able to work a lot. And I think he'd want to help the family in some way. So he may be kind of urgently wanting to get out the door too. You know, uh, Hainsey has already accepted a bid to go to the senior bowl. He's, he's been invited and accepted. And those invitations are like gold tickets this year because the Shrine Bowl and the NFL PA Bowl are canceled. And, and the Senior Bowl's the premier showcase anyway. So I, I don't think Hainsey comes back. I mean, I think it would be good for Notre Dame fans. I don't think it necessarily would help Robert Hainsey be a, a higher draft pick. Yeah, I don't – he's a two-time captain and has started for essentially four years. I don't, what, what else does he need to put on – like – Whatever's on film is what Robert Hainsey is. I don't know that he's making drastic changes in who he is as a football player next year that would make any compelling reason for him to come back unless, like, he wanted to switch positions and felt like, well, maybe I'm going to play on the interior at the next level, so maybe I should give that a try, but I don't know why Notre Dame would. I guess Notre Dame would probably be open to that because he's a good football player, but um, I just don't – Notre Dame – I think Notre Dame's in a more interesting spot in terms of needing tackles next year than it is an, an interior lineman. Um, so I think in general, if I'm in these guys' shoes, guys that have already graduated, um, and those guys that have used four years of eligibility and, but can still come back because of COVID, I'm not coming back because of the uncertainty of what the heck next season looks like. I, I, if, if, if there's any chance it's going to be what, how stressful this season has been, I think guys are going to want to move on and, and, and kind of see what's next and, um, figure out what to do next. But, um, I'll throw out some names of guys that some of those guys aren't necessarily guys that have played four years, but they'll have another year of eligibility left as fifth years naturally. But a guy like Avery Davis, I think he should come back. Um, Jonathan Doerr has already mentioned that he plans to come back. I think Drew White, Myron Tangavaloa, most of those guys could, could benefit from another year. Obviously Isaiah Pryor um, plans to come back. Josh Lug, Dylan Gimmons on the offensive line. Um, So those would be some of the candidates that I think, um, could be back for Notre Dame next year. Yeah, you know, one thing about Hainsey coming out, you know, uh, Scott Wright thinks that Hainsey's a fourth or fifth round draft pick. And the one thing about the 2021 draft this year is, is the thought that because a lot of guys will take advantage of the COVID rule, that the fourth through seventh round is going to be there's going to be guys normally wouldn't get drafted that move into the draft okay. because of people sticking around. So if you're a day three guy, you, you, you may go up a round or two just because of the numbers. One thing personal to Frank, I think there was a point where he tweeted that he was either battling COVID. And so we would like an update on how you're doing Frank, when you get a chance. Yeah, we're glad to, we hopefully, hopefully things are going well for him and glad to see he's still submitting questions for us. Cause he's a pretty, regular contributor to questions for the podcast. Uh, Next question is from Irish fan one zero two. We often hear about first year success for quarterbacks attributed to a lack of film available for their opponents. Is this also true for coordinators? Do you believe some of Tommy Reese's success is because of a lack of film on his tendencies? Well, I think there's a little bit of a blind date element early in the season, certainly in the first game, and but we're in December, so I, I think everything that Tommy Reese is doing, uh, he's earning at this point and, and not the element of surprise. The other thing about him that's kind of interesting is he does sometimes break his own tendencies. 
And it makes it harder to kind of zero in on what he's thinking. Uh, he's, you know, the one thing I wouldn't say is, ah, that's predictable. I knew he was going to do that there. You know, there's, there's times where I go, hmm, I was not expecting that. So, um, so I will give him credit for, you know, I don't care how much film you have on Tommy Reese. He's going to come up with some things that surprise you from time to time. Yeah. I, I think what makes a good coordinator is, is your understanding of your own tendencies so you can be prepared to break them and, and, and catch the defense per, sort of predicting something that they, they believe is coming based on what you've done in the past. Um, but Notre Dame's offense does have some tendencies. I mean, just small ones I've picked up here or there. If it's a pistol formation, if the running back is lined up behind Ian Book, it's almost certainly a running play. Um, also, if there's two running backs on the field, it usually is a running play as well. So um, I'm sure I'm not the first. I'm sure Clemson's defensive staff is well aware of that. Um, they but, are now. <laughs> but I think uh, I'm sure Tommy Reese is aware of that too, and I, I'm sure he's waiting for moments to to buck those trends um, to, to, to get defenses on their heels. Um, so I think, um, after, after a few games, I think there's enough film out there on a, on a coordinator to get a sense of what he likes to do. Um, but I think he, he continues to expand and, and tinker with personnels. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, they've, they've done some, a, a number of different two running back looks. Um, they've even run two, two running backs with one tight end, two running backs with two tight ends. And, sometimes two running backs with three tight ends. There's not even a wide receiver on the field with two running backs and three tight ends, which is an interesting set. And I think they can do a number of different things from that. Um, so I think um, probably the one thing that we don't know, like in terms of time Reese's tendencies is how does he call a game when his team is down big because it hasn't happened <laughs> yet. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully in Notre Dame's case, they, we don't have to find that out <laughs> for the rest of the season. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think there's enough film out there to have an understanding of what Tommy Reese likes to do. Um, but like I mentioned, Tommy Reese is, is well aware of what, what, what those tendencies are, are as well. Last question we have is from at Stanley in Tampa too. If Clark Lee takes the head coach job at Vanderbilt, but never has a season above 500, do you think he would still be considered for the head coaching job at Notre Dame sometime in the future? I, I do. I, I think the program would need to show improvement. And I think Clark would do that. Um, you know, Lou Holtz was at Minnesota for a couple years. He went from Arkansas and Minnesota at that point, they were the absolute worst program in the country when he took that job and they went four and seven. And I think six and five, that's when you used to play 11 and then Notre Dame hired him right after that. So I think again, as long as they see movement, an improvement and see a guy that's building a program, they're going to like Clark Lee and he would certainly get a shot at being Notre, uh, Brian Kelly's successor. Yeah. I think, I think he would be considered probably no matter what happens at Vanderbilt. I mean, obviously his chances may be diminished based on how that goes, but um, Notre Dame already has a pretty good understanding of how he fits into the university and the athletic department and its football program. Um, I think they'll, they'll want to see some decent success, but um, I, to me, what I would be more, most interested in, in terms of Clark Lee as a head coach elsewhere, regardless of sort of the win loss record is what, how does he do with recruiting as a head coach? And, and with those wins and losses, what do those wins and losses look like? Because there's, there's, there's meaning beyond just 
losing five games in the SEC. Okay, who did you lose those games to? Were they competitive? Did you did any of your wins come against teams that you you weren't expected to beat? And and what does your program look like? How does it play? What is what is the identity of the program? Those are all things that a head coach can address that isn't always necessarily reflected in in the coaching record. I was I was talking to John Heiser, who was a longtime SID at Notre Dame last weekend, and he he saw this exactly how I did. Jerry Faust last year at Notre Dame, he was five and six, and it was just a painful roll to the end of that five years. They had promised him five years, and it really should have ended at three. Lou Holtz's first year, five and six, and it couldn't have felt any different. They were competitive with top 10 teams that first year. Faust's teams were getting laid out. Uh, and beaten badly uh, and having the score run up on them. But they both ended up five and six. So, again, you have to look sometimes beyond the bottom line. You just knew something was going to happen good with Notre Dame. And sure enough, two years later, they were national champions. All right, that's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We are three away from our goal of 200 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Um, so we'll only take a few of you to push us past it. Uh, shout out. All you Ramones fans. <laughs> shout out to Andy DeCharlotte, Honest1555, and Anon111222333444 for the recent reviews. And thanks to everyone that's helped us out with the ratings. I hope that anonymous person did that intentionally to get me to read all those numbers. Um, and if so, I respect that. Uh, We'll be back Sunday with a special recruiting episode of the Pot of Gold Extra Point ahead of next week's early signing period. Until then, stick with NDInsider.com for all your off-week coverage needs.